News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, a major advance in fusion research was announced in Washington yesterday. It was decades in the coming. Scientists say for the first time they have been able to engineer a reaction that produced more power than was used to ignite it. Well, here to tell us more about that is Ivan Semenuk, Globe and Mail science reporter. Ivan, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It's uh, pretty exciting times. Very exciting. Can you break it down for us? And what are we actually looking at with this breakthrough? Sure. Well, fusion is uh, is a form of energy, a form of nuclear energy that involves bringing small nuclei of hydrogen together and creating energy in the process. So that that uh, makes it quite different from the other kind of nuclear energy that we we know we all know about, which is uh, you know where you take a large atom like uranium and, and break it down and make uh, power that way, and that's, that's the conventional uh, approach. So fusion is more challenging but can yield more energy, and it's this long sought-after goal by researchers to try to see if they could sustain that kind of reaction and perhaps uh, at some future time harness it for, uh, for uh, you know, a reliable source of, of power, which would be very exciting for all kinds of reasons. It, it, it wouldn't use carbon, it doesn't take up a lot of space, and it would be you know, if you had the right technology, in theory, accessible all around the world. So it'd be a a very exciting development in the future of world energy if it could be made to work. But the challenge has always been getting it to work. And uh, I would imagine that's still a big challenge. It is pretty amazing, though, when you when scientists looked at this or when they realized that they had triggered a reaction that released 50% 50% more energy than it took to trigger the reaction. Not mm-hmm. to use the word reaction too much, but what do you think the reaction was when scientists realized they had done that? Well, you could tell yesterday, I mean, I, I was, uh, you know, tuning into the press conference along with lots of other people. They're obviously elated that they got to this point. And it wasn't, and you know, it's not entirely given that this was going to happen. I mean, I would say that it wasn't a big surprise sort of in the last couple of years because it was clear they were closing in on this target. But, you know, say if you went back 10 years ago, uh, where, where things were progressing much more inc- incrementally, it was harder to see how long it was going to take. But, but the last, uh, last couple of years in particular have really uh, seen some big gains. It mainly has to do with the technology behind the system that they're using. There are two types, at least two types of fusion, or sort of two pathways to fusion, I should say. There's only one type of fusion, but there are at least two ways to get there. One is this thing called magnetic confinement, where you have a very hot plasma that's contained kind of in a magnetic trap. So various companies are exploring that, and there's a very large demonstration reactor being built in France right now. Uh, That's sort of uh, seen as slightly further ahead along the way, but they haven't yet tested anything. They haven't started, uh, you know, to try to run their experiment. This other type of fusion that we're hearing about this week this is called inertial confinement fusion. This is where instead of trying to, you know, kind of contain this hot plasma like lightning in a bottle, they, uh, they only have fusion for a short time, just like a pulse, as they blast this target with a laser. But then they do create that energy output. And the idea in the long term would be if you could create uh, some kind of a setup where you're making those pulses or hitting those targets repeatedly, over and over again, and then sort of in 
in, in that way, kind of continuously generating energy. And does it come with any of the same concerns then or the same worries about reactors or building reactors and having meltdowns and that kind of safety concern? It's very different. Uh, so I think it would be uh, misleading to say there's no radiation or there's no nuclear waste and so on, you know, because uh, a nuclear facility of any kind, you know, I mean, you're still getting your energy from these high-speed particles, in this case, neutrons moving very rapidly. So over time, the parts of the reactor would become irradiated and you'd have to sort of dispose of them in, in the right way. But that's not like the situation we have with conventional nuclear power, where you have, you know, the, the process itself produces spent fuel, uh, which you have to then you know, curate and find a safe storage for for thousands and thousands of years. That's always been one of the uh, downsides of conventional nuclear energy. So, so it it's uh, it uh, avoids that problem. It also avoids this issue of a meltdown because uh, fusion is so hard to to get coaxed into life in the first place. That if conditions aren't exactly right or if there's some problem with the reactor, it just shuts itself down immediately. There's no no further reaction, uh, it doesn't, you know, you don't have that meltdown situation where you have a lump of uranium that can start to uh, go critical. All right, that makes sense. Uh, when we talk mm-hmm. about this uh, and the, the excitement around this and this major milestone, is this something that, that scientists have been working at and now that work becomes more realistic as far as what does this mean for the future of nuclear power, this type of power, or are there still other uh, milestones like this that need to be reached? Well, there are big milestones ahead. This is a big one, though, and I think the reason it's a big one is you get to that net energy point where you still have, you know, where you're getting more energy out than you're putting in. Even that, though, we have to qualify I mean, it's, it put out more energy than it absorbed from the laser, but it still takes more energy to run the laser. So, you know, I think the idea is to try to now make it more efficient, more streamlined, easier to repeat over and over again until you get to the point where the entire system could be powered with these reactions with energy to spare. And when you're in that situation, then you can start thinking about, okay, can we then harness this to a power plant? So that's likely still decades away, especially with inertial confinement fusion. Perhaps in the meantime, magnetic fusion will will move ahead. Uh, And then there are companies right in Vancouver, General Fusion, which has a different kind of reactor design that employs elements of both magnetic and inertial. It's kind of a hybrid of the two. Uh, And there are other companies like that as well that kind of are trying out different approaches because they can leverage new technologies that weren't available, you know, uh, 20, 30 years ago. I think the whole field has got new impetus, new momentum from this. And I think now we're at a point where it's not a question of whether this, you know, whether fusion can happen, but, you know, how long will it be before it can play a significant role in, in our energy um, kind of diet? Do you think it's going to then kind of leapfrog conventional nuclear energy and be a more welcome source or is that also putting it decades and decades down the road as as being a possible place where we would see that power storage and that power i I think it's starting to look very plausible that we will see working reactors uh you know in the 2030s uh i think it would still take a long time though for them to scale up to the point where they're making a significant contribution but still that's that's saying a lot because for a long time it seemed 
you know, fusion was that thing that was always on the horizon that we were never able to reach somehow. So, so I, I think it is not unrealistic to talk about uh, about uh, seeing working reactors uh, actually making power. Of course, there are technical hitches along the way. We can't predict them all, but uh, but it's not. Uh, it you know, it, I think the optimism is 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 not. Uh, I think the optimism is well placed. I think the one thing people have to realize, though, <clears throat> there's a lot of conversation now about how fusion is sort of going to solve climate change. And I just want to maybe bring some reality to that issue. You know, even the best, most optimistic climate models, you know, tell us how quickly we have to get off carbon. I don't think fusion will be around with enough scale to take that off our shoulders. We're going to have to solve the climate problem in other ways, get off of carbon in other ways, but then at some further point, uh, fusion could indeed be there as a significant part of, of the long term of, of how the world meets its energy needs. All right. Uh, Ivan Semenak, thank you so much for joining us and for explaining this. Appreciate it. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Time to check in with Mornings with Simi contributor Raji Sohal. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Yeah, I'm reading about this uh, story about a civil claim in here in BC. Basically, a son and his wife are being sued by his parents because the four of them lived in a home together. And the home was purchased with a combination of their funds, uh, with the parents giving $100,000 towards uh, purchasing the home initially. That $100,000 was apparently the entire life savings of those parents. Uh, But the title of the home went to the son and his wife. So already this story is rife with uh, there's going to be problems in the future. So the problems did happen. So the parents say that their son and wife understood an early agreement. um, Doesn't say if it was a verbal agreement or whatever, but that they would live together with the son and wife for the rest of their lives. And the son and the wife say, no, that was not agreed upon. Uh, So now those, the parents are suing for saying, you made life in the house intolerable. Uh, We contributed to helping the family thrive, taking care of the house, of the grandchildren, cooking, cleaning, getting grocery, all that kind of thing, of which the son and the wife deny. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that it almost seems inevitable to happen in this day and age with such a tricky uh, agreement, whether it was verbal or whatever form that agreement took. But how could you get a right, uh, an agreement like that in writing? I've wondered, you know, like if you if that was something that was going to be embarked upon, like how would you possibly be able to conceive of all the tiny things that would and big things that would have to be uh, agreed upon from the outset? Just seems really complicated. It does. And it made me think of uh, some other stories where we've talked about co-ownership, which is kind of what we're talking about here. But I'm guessing because it's a family unit, maybe they didn't go that route. But certainly when two couples or two families purchase a home together, there are legal ways of co-owning and making sure everything is in writing. So if something does go sideways, you can check the, the documents and figure it out. But it sounds like in this case, because we're talking about a family unit, they probably didn't do that. 
Yeah. And with a family unit too, you know, you're talking about grandchildren involved and caretaking childcare. I mean, that's just so much more complicated, complex uh, to me than just co-owning with say one couple with another couple. In fact, I know um, a couple that successfully purchased a home together 17 years ago. They still, these two couples live in the same house and they swear they've never had any conflicts because everything was really black and white from the beginning. But um, with multi-generational living being so much more common these days in Canada. Um, I think, you know, for a lot of people for whom that's a part of their culture, even of their background, there's this notion of you've got to respect your elders no matter what. There's no such thing as your elders being wrong. There's no such thing as talking back to them. And the thing is, that's like something from the homeland. uh, And it doesn't hold doesn't hold the same water here. Um, So I think also it comes down to personalities. Uh, In fact, even if three out of four people get along great, but one person is the odd one out, then you're already looking at a sticky situation. It seems unfortunate too. I can't imagine how much money they've spent taking it to court. Oh, yeah. And so they talk about this initial $100,000 that they put into it. Um, You know, I don't know what year that was, but obviously, you know, with inflation and with the value of money changing, that $100,000 might be worth something else today. It's probably one of these situations also where, you know, yes, they've gone to court to solve it, but it's one of those things probably where no one is right. Uh, And the idea overall of living in harmony may be better than the reality for these folks. We will uh, see. I guess the courts will decide on that one. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. BC's ombudsperson has released a report and in it a cautionary message for public organizations. And this has to do with policies that are too narrow to serve the public fairly. And joining us to talk more about this is BC's ombudsperson, Jay Chalk. Thank you so much. Good morning to you. Morning, Jill. Talk about this case, if you can. This is a report that highlights the case. It's a woman in her 70s, bureaucratic roadblocks when she was trying to change the name on her birth certificate. What happened here? Yeah, so a lot of times when we do an investigation, we're looking at big, broad systems, uh, uh, the entire, say, seniors' care system. A lot of our investigations, say, related to income assistance affecting thousands of people. Um, uh, we're currently doing an investigation into emergency disaster relief and in last year's extreme weather events. But this case is uh, really a very specific, narrow, some might say simple problem to fix, but it really does reveal a, a bigger public administration issue. So, um, as you say, we uh, a woman uh, 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 applied to the Vital Statistics Agency to amend her birth registration. And what it came down to is literally a single letter on her birth registration from 70 years ago. So um, she was born in the 1940s, and when she was born, her her given name was Elizabeth, spelled the normal way. Um, But in her birth registration, there was a spelling error, and uh, uh, one of the the A was changed to an E. And, uh, And so it was a mistake on her birth registration. She went through her entire life with her uh, uh, using the name Elizabeth spelt the normal way, um, but recently decided that she wanted to correct this error and applied to the Vital Statistics Agency to you know, fix this relatively simple problem. Uh, there's a specific process under the Vital Statistics Act to allow for a given name correction. 
So you can't change your surname that way. If you want to change your surname, you have to apply for a formal change of name. But there's a, a, a more simple process to uh, amend and correct your given name as long as it was used um, in respect of you before you turned 12 years old. So she had to show that. And the Act says you can provide evidence that's just satisfactory to the Registrar General, the vital statistics people. Um, but it, what the Registrar General had done was say, no, the only way you can do that is by providing two documents uh, that are official records that show that that was your name before you were 12. Well, that was 70 years ago. Um, she found one, amazingly, uh, an elementary school record uh, that showed Elizabeth spelled the normal way, uh, but was unable to find a second record because all those records, not surprisingly, have been destroyed. Uh, and so what this revealed was that um, the Vital Statistics Agency had a broad power, but by policy, they had narrowed it. Hmm. And I mean, this all because of one letter that she just wanted to change one letter to make it correct. Absolutely. And so what this shows is uh, what it really revealed is a doctrine uh, in law known as fettering discretion. And fetters are uh, sort of shackles that are put on the, the, the legs of horses to keep them from running away. In other words, so it restricts movement. And so in, there's a legal principle that uh, if you have discretion, it's okay to have policies and then guidelines that help decision makers make decisions consistently uh, and, uh, and so that, uh, you know, that you're not dealing with each case uh, arbitrarily. But it's not okay uh, if those policies are so restrictive that you've disabled yourself from exercising that discretion in individual cases by adopting a fixed rule. And so what we determined was that the, the rule of the Vital Statistics Agency to require these two documents, um, uh, that that was too much uh, interference with the broad discretion that the statute gave to uh, the Registrar General. So uh, we determined that that was an unfair procedure. So was this a case, though, of a policy being so strict that the person who was working on this file had no leeway or no discretion? Or is it uh, somebody taking the policy to the letter of the policy and not being willing to look at this case individually and say, let's let this woman do this with one document instead of two? No, the policy was binding, and so um, in the absence of having a second uh, record that was created before she was 12, the the, uh, Office of the Registrar General refused to even consider her application. In other words, they never went to the merits. Mm. She also provided, for example, an affidavit from her sister, obviously someone who knew her her whole life, um, who uh, talked about her name has always been Elizabeth, spelt the normal way. Uh, and But they wouldn't look at that because that wasn't an official record created at the time. So, no, it was very much that the policy was so restrictive that they couldn't even exercise that discretion. Um, they were prevented from doing that. The other thing we found was that um, that this was this policy was also discriminatory on the basis of age because obviously someone who applies later in their life is going to be have have more challenges uh, due to the normal records destruction that will happen in various public 
bodies. And we felt that that pointing out that that was discriminatory uh, on the basis of age was something that the Registrar General should consider as well. So I'm pleased to say that we made three recommendations to uh, the Registrar General, and they've accepted all three, one uh, being that they change this policy. Now, they've only so far agreed to change it in what they describe as minor amendments. Clearly, this is uh, one letter. Um, but we think that they should make sure that they apply this discretion in all uh, records correction, uh, given name correction cases. Secondly, they have agreed to train their staff on the new policy. And thirdly, um, they've reached out uh, to the complainant uh, and uh, are prepared to make the amendment that they up to now had been refusing to do. So after our investigation, they um, very late in that process agreed to, uh, um, to make the correction. So good news for her hopefully good news for people in the future. Uh, yeah, and I would imagine, I mean, I don't know how often this kind of case comes before uh, the, the Vital Statistics Agency, but again, the fact that this particular woman had to go through all of that and get you and your office involved, good on her for doing it, but it does seem like a bit of a bureaucratic nightmare. It does, and and I think if, if this was only, if the, if the principle only ever applied to one agency, well, then maybe... Uh, you know, maybe that's one thing, but really fettering is something that can happen in any public body. And so I thought it was important to issue a public report and we'll be sending it to public agencies across the province to remind them that having policies when you have discretion is okay, but it's not okay if they go so far as to create an inflexible rule that then prevents decision makers from exercising that policy. So it's something that I want uh, all public bodies to take a look at to make sure that they're giving uh, enough room uh, for decision makers to make decisions and the public isn't harmed uh, because things are too inflexible. Well, what an interesting story and a positive outcome that these changes were, the recommendations that you made were actually taken and the, the changes made. Jay Chalk, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us. It was great having Thanks. you on the show. Great. Thanks, Joe. Anytime. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk a little bit about housing and specifically looking at what is happening with developers and city planners in Vancouver and the complex rules that govern housing construction. That is the focus of a story in the Globe and Mail written by Urban Affairs contributor Francis Beulah. And Francis joins us on the line now. Good morning to you. Hi, Jill. This is another reading this story. It just uh, it seems so frustrating that we hear so many politicians talk about fast tracking things about the desperate need for housing. But you have written at length about this complex system where uh, there's this ongoing game of tug of war. Yeah. And um, uh, the sto my story is about what was supposed to be a new process that was introduced after a motion in July 2021. So more than a year ago. Um, that was supposed to help unlock a lot of projects from limbo where they'd been put by the planning department because they didn't meet every one of the 327, you know, rules or requirements from uh, for a particular piece of zoning. Um, but they had, you know, good projects to offer, uh, projects with a lot of rental uh, buildings, projects with potentially below market rentals or, you know, um, something that was going to house predominantly Indigenous people or whatever. And this process was supposed to help uh, bring these kinds of projects forward, even if they didn't totally match, uh, you know, uh, or tick every single box. If they were going to do something good for the city, the idea was, let's bring them forward and see if council is willing to support them. Well, what 
what I'm hearing from builders who are proposing these is that they're either getting rejection letters saying you don't fit the policy, uh, current city policies, duh, we knew that. <laughs> that's why we were held up originally and that's why we applied under this process. Um, or secondly, yeah, we think this is good. And so now what we want to do is like do a little planning thing where we rezone the area around your building, which will take us, you know, some extra time because we have to consider all the other pieces of land as well. And so um, all the builders, uh, there's not a single person who's had a, you know, complete green light to go ahead. And um, all of them are going, what was the point of this? Well, what was the point of it then if there's such a disconnect between the city's head planner, staff and councillors and, and getting these things done? Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, Vancouver's always been a city that has a strong planning department that throughout the 80s, 90s, 2000s felt like, you know, we are delivering this beautiful city and we're doing it by focusing on, you know, making sure everyone follows the rules and negotiating a lot. And we've, but we've arrived at a point where everyone's going, maybe we can't be so fussy all the time anymore. Like, let's just try to get some stuff built. Uh, and there's, I you know, there's this real tension between wanting to move quickly and then the planning department saying, well, you know, if we move too quickly, there could be unintended consequences. And wouldn't it be better if we replanned the whole area and then lots of properties get unlocked? Um, and there's a, a real fundamental kind of gap between those two desires. Right. So that's going to be for this council to, to figure out what to do about that. Right. So it's this disconnect, too, between this desire to to maybe go ahead and do one off projects and work it out mm-hmm. later and city planners saying absolutely not. And city planners saying, no, 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 we can't really like do a one off. We have to do a, an area plan or a, an expedited rezoning study or something like that, like just not just a real reluctance to look at one project at a time. Um uh, saying that we'll spend a bit more time and then, you know, there'll be more properties unlocked, but maybe those properties aren't going anywhere. And this one developer is, you know, you don't know. So, um, and it's just a desire, I think, to, for both sides to, they each wants to have ultimately the power to initiate something or to hold the reins and it's just not working. Right. And you write in your piece, I found it interesting as well, you uh, include a bit about Raymond Louis, who people will remember was a Vision Vancouver councillor. He's now mm-hmm. uh, at uh, Coromandel Properties and his kind mm-hmm. of looking at it from both sides and projects just not getting done. Yeah. And he said, you know, he, I mean, he's worked at the city. So he said the planners aren't evil people. I'm not saying that. Uh, but Um, They are saying that with every project that's coming to them, they're saying, oh, well, actually, we need to do a little area study said that's like 20 area studies. Um, They can maybe get three or four done a year. They're always saying that they're understaffed. They've got a lot of other work coming in. So when is this going to happen? Like, you know, this is, again, years and years of delay. Um, So, uh, yeah, he was he was very understanding about what the planners are trying to do. They're trying to do what they've been told was their job. But, um, you know, what people are feeling is that the new council needs to send a 
pretty clear signal about what they want done uh, on this. Do we want to move fast or do we want to move not quite as fast so that we can do all of these planning exercises? And uh, so I guess, yeah, it's the it's the new council and also the pressure from the new premier saying to councils, get this stuff done. Yes. Yeah. Although I did just do a story comparing who's building what in comparison with their targets. And, you know, I mean, places like Vancouver and Surrey and Burnaby and Coquitlam, they're exceeding their targets. Um, The premier's not going to be coming after them, I don't think. All right. Uh, Well, very interesting findings. Francis, we'll leave it there for today. But as always, thank you so much. Yeah, and uh, goodbye from the well-housed here. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that is Francis Bula, Urban Affairs Contributor with The Globe and Mail. You can read that at theglobeandmail.com. This is Mornings with Simi. 737 on this Wednesday morning. Well, whether you're looking to save some money or perhaps save the planet, maybe both, when it comes to gifting, sustainability has become more popular than ever. And with more on that, we are joined once again by show contributor Raji Sohal. Good morning again. Hi, Jill. Yeah, there's so many things that you can do if you're looking for a more sustainable Christmas uh, from getting more eco-friendly gifts or maybe getting just less gifts, consuming less, uh, to even watching out about how you wrap your presents with a lot of people reusing wrapping these days. And I talked to Dr. David Hardesty, a professor at UBC Sauter School of Business, and he said more consumers are thinking about sustainability issues when they gift than before. And partly he said it's a generational thing, so younger folks are not wanting to waste so much. I mean, with younger people and and more world consciousness i think year by year we're we're trying to do better <laughs> giving experiences rather than gifts and trying to give people things they actually want like that that's one of my tips i guess is actually asking people what they want for christmas or checking like hey do you want tea i've gotten so many tea gifts by the way and i don't even drink tea <laughs> so <laughs> that's my number one number one tip is like uh don't give a gift just because, right, without knowing if it would actually be needed or not, right? Like, that's a great way to reduce waste is make sure it's actually going to be useful. Uh, another one is, of course, re- reusing. So one thing we do for wrapping, wrapping is always a big waste item, right? And so we reuse gift bags uh, that you can actually use the same gift bag year after year. If you're just giving within your family, that's easy to do because then you can open the gift bag, take the gift out and just save the bag again for next year. It still looks nice. Or even from person to person, if you give a gift with a gift bag, then hopefully they can reuse it as well. Um, and even we do some amount of re-gifting too, which is maybe a little controversial, but, uh, you know, if somebody gives you a bottle of wine and you don't drink wine, of course you could give it to someone else or within our family, we, we give maybe a book that we've already read. We actually say, Hey, you know, a, a used book, it reads just the same as a new book. And so because it's more environmental, actually, we have a preference for used books, even if it's somebody, something someone has already read. Or actually, if you're buying a book for me, I say, hey, please buy a used book rather than a new one. I'll actually like the gift more if you give me a used book because I know that it didn't you know, require additional resources. Well, people do sometimes ask me, you know, what do you want? And I say, oh, you know, I'm happy with just a card or 
you know, please give me something that's, you know, secondhand. I would prefer a secondhand gift already a used item rather than a brand new one. Right. I feel mm. better, right? If I get like a, a used book or something um, or a refurbished product, I'll even say, hey, you know, I'd rather get the, the refurbished one than the brand new one because I know that way it didn't require you know, taking taking new resources to create it. And so I actually enjoy the gift more if I receive that type of gift. Hmm, interesting. He was, I thought he was going to go down the wrong road on, on re-gifting and because uh, I know a lot of people don't love that, but he actually had some great re-gifting ideas, especially for a bottle of wine if you don't drink it and you know somebody who does or the books. So those those make a lot of sense. I don't think people would be upset with those items if they were re-gifted. Yeah, you know, um, this giving people a gift out of obligation, I think is a really interesting one. It also, it's, it's one that falls differently in different cultural lines too. Um, one year, Jill, in my first job, uh, the boss paid very close attention to people's interests and, and hobbies over the year. And he got everyone something that was super tailored to them and everything was secondhand. I thought it was amazing there were people, because this was so many years ago, who were grossed out by it, uh, <laughs> who didn't like the idea whatsoever. I think if that happened today, everyone would be on board. Um, and there was this interesting stat in the World Economic Forum report on uh, Christmas shopping. And, and a survey in the UK found that last year, the average amount spent on an unwanted gift was 50 bucks. And I thought, that's a lot of unnecessary waste, right? If you give, say, 10 unwanted gifts in a single season, that's a lot of money. Um, but Dr. Hardesty there, he commented that it's more common these days, it's more acceptable to have sustainability top of mind uh, when gifting this season. And I also talked to one Vancouver CEO whose business uh, revolves around selling quality, uh, excellent condition, secondhand clothes online for kids. Very niche. And she said her business is booming at this time of the year because shoppers want to get something that's unique for their kids uh, instead of something that's just like, you know, from the mall. And so people in Metro Vancouver, they can sign through her website. But she said a few years ago, just the attitudes were very different. If we had this conversation four years ago when we just started, I would have told you, no, no way, uh, this is not happening. Um, you know, it would be us pushing and trying to advocate for sustainable gifts and gifts that are used. Um, but right now, people are coming to us. They're telling us, you can't really tell the difference between used and new um but people are starting to recognize uh number one factor for us is that there is no ick people just thinking that used clothing is just dirty and it smells and it's not worth their time um and you know definitely not a gift and they would be seen as somebody who's not giving a good gift you know uh, not a good gift giver right now that actually it's 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 quite the opposite. They're the gift giving hero <laughs> um, if they do uh, purchase something um, that is used or even a gift card. If they can't decide on a particular look or a style, they would opt out for a gift card to our shop. I think we're way past, you know, you getting a medal for being upfront about sustainability and you did a good job. It's not really a good job anymore. It's, it's just more of a, um, yes, you did good, but that's not the medal you deserve. You deserve the medal of you actually spending the time and and getting a gift that's sustainable and also fashionable and, you know, a unique item that you cannot find anywhere else. It's the, those unique items that have made memories with families before them. 
Hmm, interesting. Now, Raji, I need to go back because you said something that had me wondering. You talked about so that you had a boss that gave everyone secondhand gifts. I immediately thought, okay, yeah. why is the, the boss giving everyone uh, his or her leftover garbage? But uh, maybe oh, yeah. not because you said no, some people didn't like it. Gifts. Okay. What, yeah, so what did you get? Oh, I got a book. Uh, an, it was a secondhand book uh, of Babar, which I had mentioned at some point I really enjoyed when I was a kid. So it was a nice addition. And I couldn't believe that he had listened and picked up on that little thing. And he did that for everybody in the office, uh, which also because he was a boss, uh, just really the thought behind it went so far. Hmm, interesting. But you said not everybody yeah. was was fully on board with this. No, no, they were not. People were like, wow, all the time you put into this, you should have put, you know, time is money. You should have put that money into a gift certificate. <laughs> mm, interesting. Uh, but uh, and like uh, the um, talking about the consignment, I, I do agree in what your guest said there. Times have changed a little bit, I think, or, or perhaps people are more accepting of that now. Yeah. And she also said, like, you should you don't deserve a medal for being sustainable. That's how typical and common it is now. And I think relatively speaking, Jill, that's a big change for our society to go through. Right. From the boss who got a secondhand gifts that most people were uh, offended by because they were secondhand to now people appreciating that because it can be a sign of more thought being put into a gift. Right. Like especially, you know, looking at something like a secondhand book, you're going to have to do your research uh, to find that book probably. Um, but I, I don't think when I say secondhand that I, um, people are taking that hopefully not to mean that they're just pulling something out of their closet and handing it to you, but, you know, doing some work, doing some research, uh, because there are so many more secondhand options available, including online for shopping. Yeah, there's the big difference, you're right, between sourcing something out, getting something nice, or uh, just giving somebody your hand-me-downs, which I'm still going to say there are going to be a lot of people in the category. I, I, I'll put myself there. I, I don't want your hand-me-downs for Christmas. I don't want anybody's hand-me-downs. I'd rather get nothing than that. You know what? I'd rather get nothing in most cases. Even my parents were saying last week to me, what would you like for Christmas? What would you like for Christmas? They always end up giving us money. Um, but I don't even want that. I would be happy with a card. Uh, we don't, I, I'm, I think we're over obsessed with gift giving in general. And that just the thought itself can be expressed through so many other means, so many other ways. I love baked goods. And I know that a lot of uh, time and energy goes into planning that. So if somebody gave me something that they've baked, I would appreciate that so much more than um, just some kind of random gift. And I think also for younger people, for younger kids, there's so much waste, right, with toys that they play with literally for the day. They get it on Christmas morning, they play with it that day, and then they forget about it and it ends up in a landfill. And I think for kids, it's all about experiences. Um, and that doesn't have to be expensive. Like people might be thinking, oh, that's got to be a lot. Uh, you know, for adults, giving a massage is always appreciated. But for kids, like maybe the promise of taking them ice skating or, you know, doing something with them, like taking them to a movie. Uh, so it doesn't have to be loads of money. And the experience goes so much further than just playing with a toy for 20 minutes on Christmas morning. All right. Uh, some uh, food for thought there for sure. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Jill. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Let's take a look at housing prices. And we are looking today at some new numbers that have been put out by Royal LePage, taking a look at whether or not we're going to see a drop in housing prices in 2023. Well, joining us to talk more about this is Adil Danani, founder and principal of Danani Group Real Estate Advisors. Adil, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning, Jill. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's something I know a lot of people are paying attention to and wondering what it's going to look like as we head into 2023. What are we looking at as far as home prices? So I think um, uh, if you take a step back and look at where we've been and, and where we are today, it's you know clearly we're in a, we're in a correctionary period in you know the overall market. We do believe that we're going to be an expansionary cycle long term. Like prices will go higher, but for now. As you know, a lot of buyers, like would-be buyers, have, have taken to the sidelines. Some buyers are priced out of the market just simply because um, interest rates are at six and a half percent on a, you know, on a at the prime rate. It's really forcing buyers to revisit their finances and figure out what the future looks like. So for now, we're we're seeing prices obviously come off. We've given up a lot of the gains um, over the last twelve months. So prices year over year are pretty flat. Um, and we anticipate, you know, price changes to happen kind of towards the third or fourth quarter of next year. So looking at these numbers from Royal LePage as well, and I know BC and especially Metro Vancouver are all always uh, kind of a little different. They're not, right. uh, they don't always fall in line with what we're seeing right across the country. But uh, when we see that the aggregate price of a home is set to drop just 1% uh, year over year, yeah. does that seem right? To, and again, knowing that Metro Vancouver, the market here is always a bit different? Yeah, so if you look over year over year, those numbers, so we're comparing, you know, this last quarter, so Q4 of 2022 to Q4, a lot of price growth initially, but we've given up a lot of those gains over like perhaps the last eight months because we did see the market come out of the gate really strong at the beginning of the year, you know, between January to April. Um, And then the market has been in kind of this correction period over the last eight months. So yeah, to, to the reason why it's only up or, you know, essentially flat um, over a 12 month period is because it went up and then it's corrected. We, I would say the market itself, broad based speaking is about, uh, is, has adjusted about 10 or 15%. Hmm. And what kind of an impact do you think interest rates and this latest hike by the Bank of Canada is having? Oh, like a, an incredible impact. I mean, if you look at the average, you know, income in, in uh, greater Vancouver, and then you factor in rise in borrowing costs, if you were to dollarize it, let's, let's just simplify what this means. So at the beginning of the year, when we saw record low interest rates, um, for every $100,000 you borrowed, it would cost you four, $400 a month. So if you bought, you know, a $500,000 condo, it would cost you uh, $2,000 a month in the mortgage payment. That um, metric or that uh, number has now gone to $600 for every $100,000 you borrowed. So your mortgage payment's essentially gone up 50%. So I think people, there's two folks, there's two groups that are impacted. One, the existing um, you know, people that are in the market that are on variable rate interest uh, mortgages that are um, you know, um, handling or figuring out how to manage the higher borrowing costs. And then the buyers who are potentially looking to get into the marketplace are saying, okay, well, maybe the interest rates are just a bit too high for me right now. Maybe I need to sit it out and wait and maybe look for an indication that rates are going to be stable or, or perhaps start to decline at some point before we feel comfortable getting in. 
Which makes a lot of sense for sure. Uh, do you think that the prices as well, when we talk about the different types of housing, and I know this report also breaks it down, whether we're talking about single family detached or townhomes mm-hmm. or, or condos, is it kind of the same thing? Or are we seeing different fluctuations when we're looking at those different types of housing? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. I mean, uh, we, we, we know that the detached, you know, single family home market has the prices have actually remained quite sticky. Like, I think, you know, there's been so much focus on what's going to push the market lower um, and, and, you know, wh- why is the market adjusting? I think there's a lot of positive um, foundational, you know, factors at place keeping the market reasonably supported. Like, um, when you look at all the various product types, like, you know, condos, townhouses, houses, across the board, if you were to say prices have adjusted 10%, and we haven't been in this type of rate hiking environment in the last three decades. I'd say we fared quite well, um, you know, coming out of this aggressive, um, you know, tightening cycle. Um, we have still, I think, a structural issue when it comes to supply. Joe, like, there's still not a lot of product on the market. Um, we're still historically below our, you know, 10-year average in Greater Vancouver. We have less than 10,000 listings, um, which keeps the market really well supported. You know, when you have, don't have a lot of sellers, um, and you have fewer buyers, the equilibrium kind of remains the same, right? Not much changes in the equation. And, and then obviously, nationally speaking, the federal government has very aggressive immigration um, um, targets for the next, you know, two, three years. So you have a lot of folks coming into the country. So there's both sides of the equation. Obviously, there's a, there's a thesis as to why prices could go a little bit lower in the new year as borrowing costs rise and, and, and potentially rates get triggered. Um, there's also, I think, a, a very strong position for why prices may may stay kind of flat for the rest of the year. And that's what we're anticipating um, here at Royal Page. And do you think that's also because uh, so much of the movement that we saw during the pandemic when people were working from home and maybe moved out of urban areas and took that opportunity to do that, that's kind of happened and people are settling down? Yeah, like, I mean, when you look at the growth in certain areas, so as people are moving out of, like, um, you know, let's say the city, and they were trying to find, you know, um, a single family home and a backyard and more space. And they were going out, let's say, to the valley or to Maple Ridge or to Pitt Meadows, even further east. Those areas went disproportionately higher, right? They grew price year over year growth was much higher than areas like, let's say, Burnaby or the city of Vancouver. Um, and those are going disproportionately lower now. So there's opportunities out there now. People have settled into those areas. People that got in early during that pandemic market still have built a fair bit of equity. I'd say it's the buyers that really got in between January to April. Um, You know, if they have the holding power, they'll be fine. We all know real estate is a long-term asset. You know, you hold it long enough, gains will materialize, right? Right. I think it's just the question is, is can those folks, you know, is there a subset of the market that may struggle with the higher borrowing costs, right? They're going to have to figure out, you know, maybe it's with um, the help of family or, or, or bringing on a little bit more income, uh, putting in a suite in the basement to um, to sustain themselves during this higher interest rate environment. And we talked interest rates. Do you think inflation is also having a, an impact on this in that people are not only looking at how much their mortgages are going up, what it might cost to get into the market, but everything else costing more as well? Absolutely. I think inflation has an impact on everyone's you know pocketbook um, in every aspect of life, um, food costs, um, you know, gas at the pumps, um, obviously borrowing costs especially it's interesting a year ago or like 
when um, about eight months ago when they went started this rate heightening cycle and the Bank of Canada was on this mission to curb inflation, I think a client of ours came to us and said, you know, Adele, watch um, historically, the interest rates have always had to go to a point where they're parallel with the inflation rate. And I told my clients, I'm like, that's crazy. Like, it's not going to 7%. That's hmm. way too high. We're, we're at 6.5% on the prime rate. So we're almost there. Um, there are positive indicators that in, uh, that inflation is coming down. Like if you were at, you know, at the, I was at the pump yesterday, uh, filling up uh, filling up gas and, and you know, um, gas prices are, are considerably lower. I think people are spending less. Uh, the car market is slowing down. Um, I'm not seeing a rise in rents as we were at the beginning of the year. So I think we're on the right trajectory. Um, I'm quite optimistic for 2023. I think it's a market that goes sideways. I think a lot of the drop in the market is likely behind us. Uh, And I think prices will kind of remain sticky going forward, maybe a little bit more downside in those areas that went disproportionately higher during the pandemic and the outskirts and the peripheral markets. But overall, I think a lot of the pain is, is likely behind us. Well, that's a, a positive note. Let's uh, leave it on that positive note then for today. Uh, Adil, always great to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. 